because you're jumping back into the gut. All right, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Coaches, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. Today we have head strength and conditioning coach for the Phoenix Suns, Corey Schlesinger with us. Corey has been with the Phoenix Suns in his first season this year and previously was eight years in college with various programs as well. More importantly, he has an applied background in terms of strength and conditioning. And Corey, welcome. I'm really excited to talk to you. Pumped to be on, man. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the time. Well, we're going to dive into some practical things and probably combat a little bit of tradition and cultural norms and just get into this. But let's start with what a strength coach can do for you, but more importantly, what they should do for you. Can you talk about that? Well, it's such a heavy question, and it's a great one to start off with because it can can go in so many directions. The facade is you have a strength coach, and he's going to get your guys bigger, faster, stronger. And Don't get me wrong, a strength coach can do those things for you. But in my opinion, what a strength coach should do for you is, if anything, they should be a a quality control manager. Like You got to remember, these guys, they're the experts of the human body. They're the experts of stress on the body. And the biggest stress that these student athletes or athletes go through is, is practice. And so if... We're the expert on the staff that actually knows what those ramifications are. And so when you look at what strength can do for you, it's, look, they can be very specific and they can help set the table for head coaches to be better head coaches, in my opinion. Now, what I've found in my past is really what strength coaches have to operate within because of the environment is they generally have to create a a robustness or durability in a very general manner to all these athletes so that they could withstand the stresses that are placed upon them via the sport. And so to put it in general terms, the idea is I create a bigger pitcher of water so that whatever happens in sport, more water could flow into it. Now, what generally happens is because now our off seasons are a lot shorter, you know, the time with the strength coaches have been cut. Now the pitchers can only get so big and now the water starts overflowing the pitchers. And then that's when we have the catastrophes that we've been seeing. So, you know, what a strength coach can really do for you is the best way to put it is they can set a dinner table for you. You know, they could put the forks where they need to be. They can put the plates where they need to be. They can start serving the course meals to you, first course, second course. They can serve it in a manner where it is a better meal opposed to, you know, just trying to throw a bunch of stuff in practice and just say what happens or throw a bunch of stress on the athlete and see what happens. The goal is to have a systematic approach to why you do it. And, you know, it's what we were talking about before we hopped on, you know, work isn't just work, like work doesn't equate to success, specific work equates to success. And our goal is to streamline that. Well, I love that phrasing. And we're going to get into specificity a little bit more. But just on what you just talked about, to me, it struck me as saying, 
and this is what I've always felt about many practices and many programs I've been around, that we overtrain physically and we undertrain mentally. And that's really one of the things that I try and share with coaches from a skill acquisition motor learning standpoint is this perception action coupling. Is that fair to say in a general sense that we overtrain physically? Absolutely. Uh, that, that is the most fair statement that I've heard in a long time, to be honest. And the reason for that is it's, it's a Western culture too, right? More is more. And that's why you see gimmicks take over like, Ooh, buy this shiny thing and it'll make you better. Or, you know, try this supplement and it'll make you stronger. Like it, it's our society. It's just not basketball. It's everything. But it just so happens to be in the context of context of basketball is that we have these beautiful beings, these athletes that are, you know, six foot, four, six foot five with seven foot wingspans. Like these are rare human beings. They are specimens with their uh, ergonomics, if you will. But yet, you know, they run and jump fast. They're Ferraris on the road. You don't see them very often, but we, we drive them around every day, like they're Honda Civics. And that's what happens in practice. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We need to finely tune these individuals. We need to specifically stress these individuals so that we have the adaptation that we think we are getting. And there's ways to test that and there's ways to objectify that. And more importantly, you know, it's more about creating less stress on the body to get more impact out of them in the game. And if we're not doing that, then what we're doing is we're stroking our egos and we're making ourselves feel better by them doing more work to give us more security that we got the job done and prepared them for the sport ahead of them. This is so exciting because we can jump so many places. Uh, well, let's go here. How much in-season conditioning do we need to do separate from practice? If you're running a good practice, like saying you're playing basketball in practice, aren't you basically covering the conditioning that you need to, to keep them, as you said, running the way you want them to run? Uh, the best way to answer that is just to, just jumping right into it is, look, there's nothing that will ever prepare you for the game of basketball under the constraints of thousands and thousands of fans, noise, the opposition, the unknown, then, then playing in that environment. There is no true way to prepare for that other than doing it. So the most specific way to get in shape to play basketball, hey, guess what? It's to play basketball, okay? Now, there is some general aspects that we can do from a conditioning perspective to help deliver you know, substrates or to help have a better metabolic system so that we could buffer and so that we're able to handle the demands of sport a little better. But once again, there's so many other aspects that are involved. There's a psychological aspect. There's decision-making. There's arousal. There's all these other things. It's something that I remember when I played, nothing in every year for four years straight, the very first game, nothing ever prepared me for the first four minutes of the very first game. Nothing ever prepared me. I would go to the first timeout and I would be so gassed like I did nothing for the past six months. But in reality, it's the emotional state. It's the arousal. These are things that we cannot train for. These are things that have to just happen within the sport. And so to answer your question, long-winded, is look, play basketball. That's going to cover it. If you want to do your conditioning and running at the end, there better be a very specific purpose behind it. If it's a neck up perspective, I, I understand. If it's a punishment standpoint, okay, whatever. But look, like there, you're already gassing them alone with the basketball aspect or the sport of basketball itself. Because let's not compartmentalize stress here. Stress is stress. 
lifting weights, playing basketball, getting dumped by your girlfriend or failing a test, it's all stress. The body perceives it as stress. It doesn't know what's actually happening to it. It's just stress. So if we think basketball is different from all these other aspects, no, it's combining two, right? That's the same as taking basketball players from practice and then taking them in the weight room and doing even more plyometrics, doing more jumping. They already do that in the sport. Why am I going to expose them to the same dosage over and over and over again? It's going to lose its effectiveness. So that's the real goal is like, look, let's, let's really look at what strength is doing to the body or what basketball is doing to the body. To a certain degree, it's making it stronger. Running at high velocity, sprinting and jumping makes the body stronger, right? We don't need to keep creating it in other aspects. But if we dose it right, I think we're going to have a better product. So you're basically saying similar thing to what I'm saying from a skill acquisition motor learning process. And I know you cross over in that area and we're talking about that. You're essentially saying remove the fluff. So can you talk to me what some of the fluff is that traditionally coaches do or strength and conditioning coaches do? Yeah, in both aspects. I mean, you have your traditional drills, right? That you could literally like turn your mind off and knock out, right? Three-man weave, you know, there's, you know, all these things that are just putting poundage on the joints. And look, like in developmental models, why not? Like I, I totally understand that. But the higher up the ladder you go, the less you need that type of stuff. What you need is things that are stimulating in nature. You need to be able to engage the athlete from the neck up just as much as you're engaging them from the neck down. And the same thing in strength conditioning, man, I'm telling you, like, I still see it time and time again, you know, having these kids in preseason and gassing them uncontrolled, like, all right, get on the line and just run these sprints and have them puking on the side. I see it year after year, coach after coach. It, it happens in every program. And it's like, let's take a step back, man. It's, it comes from a place, in my opinion, of possible insecurity, possible, like the unknown, are we prepared? And then there's that satisfaction of all oh, that got threw up. So it must've been a hard day. Hard days does nothing for motor learning, skill acquisition, decision-making. It does nothing to get better. And if we want to get in this, the topic, which is my most favorite topic to argue about with sport coaches, toughness, we can go down that rabbit hole, but like, I'd rather just save the listeners time and actually talk about some real stuff. <laughs> hey coach, brief interruption of the podcast. I'd like to take a second to talk about Armchair and the basketball podcast title sponsor, BetOnline.ag. With NASCAR, UFC, and golf back, BetOnline has hundreds of games and events to bet on. Make sure to sign up before the NBA and MLB come back later this summer. They have live and simulated sports as well as a $10,000 Madden Bracket Challenge you can enter for free. Visit BetOnline.ag on your computer or mobile device to check out the action. BetOnline is your online wagering solution. Well, but here's the thing, like skill trumps everything. And I think that's what coaches sometimes forget is skill trumps everything. And then the other part that goes with it, your most skilled players are going to be one confident and two tougher because they have this self-efficacy and belief in themselves. Right. So overall training skill is going to solve almost all of these issues. As it should, right? I mean, that's the goal. Like, once again, coming with the strength and conditioning coach, what he can do for you, he could be a quality control manager. Once again, like, build off quality. You know, if we look at the famous track coach, Charlie Francis, he didn't train track and field athletes or 100-meter sprinters by training them long distance and then shortening the distance to make them faster. He did the exact opposite. 
He went as short as humanly possible, as fast as possible, and then built that over a distance. We should do the same in skill, right? Start off slow, start off in a small amount of space, start off and then speed, 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 and then keep challenging the skill through duration. And then the next thing you know, you're going to have quality over time. And then once you see quality go down, that's when you know, okay, I'm developing bad habits. They are underprepared for this. And by over stimulating them more, I'm making them less prepared. I'm not helping them. I'm putting them in the tank more. And that's the thing that drives me nuts that I see all the time is doing skill work or doing, you know, like uh, individuals to the guys are like passing out. Like you just see them going through cones at like 30 miles an hour when they have the capability from a car standpoint going 75 miles an hour. But what the problem is, there's no work to rest ratio. It's just rep after rep. And they say, good job. And you're like flailing the ball at the rim and hoping that it goes in by the end of the set. So it's like, guys, like, what are we really trying to do? I think our goal is to have high precision at high forces under control where they're in a, in a state to make the right decision at high speeds. And, and that's what it comes down to, at high speeds. Like, I, that, I can't emphasize that part enough. Um, yeah. You're saying this, which is great. You've, you've talked about mindlessness, which is the other part that, uh, you know, ties into this is that so many of these drills are mindless. So my, my comment to most coaches in most situations is slow learning five on five is better than fast learning five on out. Because as you said, you get the neck up perspective, but you're still getting some physical load to it. But this is something that, as you said, is specific. It's transferable in that way. What's Absolutely. the progression to that? What's the progression to that then? So the progression as far as from going from slow learning to fast learning? Yeah. So coaches have a fear. Again, if we're not going fast, well, here's another one. Like when coaches say, game, we got to play at game speed or we got to do this drill at game speed, they mean work harder, right? Mm -hmm. Which is game speed right. is actually change of pace. It's right. actually not working harder. Yeah. If you ask me, it, game speed is the ones that are thinking faster, not moving mm -hmm. faster. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the real deal. Like, uh, here's a great story. When I was at mid-major university, we had polar units. So we had heart rate monitors. And we would look at, you know, our players at the end in the sessions. And it turned into, a, well, who's working the hardest data? And I was like, whoa, 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 no, no, no. We don't need to look at it like that. Like, let's look at it in another way. And we saw our best player, like highest IQ, always in the right positions, makes the right reads. And they looked at it and they're like, well, he's not working hard. It's like, whoa, 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 no, no, he's the best player. Like, no, his IQ, he's always in the right place. And then we looked at our individual who's the quote unquote hardest worker. And he was the kid who just picked up basketball late, didn't have a high basketball IQ at the time, you know, was always in the wrong place. So he always had to use his physicalness to overcome his lack of basketball IQ. And so that's where it's like, oh, hey, guys, like, that's a great example of working harder is not working better. So clarify this then, because again, I think the aerobic anaerobic training part of it, which you'd refer to with Charlie Francis there about like training specifically to what your sport does. So I believe this is the case, right? The aerobic system takes a little longer to develop, but it's easier to maintain. So once we build that base, we don't need to spend this time on these long volume type of training, right? 
within a practice absolutely. season. Yeah, absolutely. The one thing that you got to make sure, like we're looking at from an annual approach, you know, the off season, you need to maintain as much fitness as possible. Like that's the bottom of the pyramid. You know, like if your fitness is low coming into preseason, that is a hard one to get. Now, once again, like you said, it's super easy to maintain once you get it. I mean, it almost takes 20 days to lose it from inactivity, you know, that, because that's why, once again, it's the easiest to maintain. But, and that's one thing, like, dude, we've got basketball players, like they're playing year round. They're not going to lose that much fitness, right? The only way they lose fitness is if they have a catastrophic injury. But the one thing that we got to make sure of is it's, it's all about tapping into, right? Like if you don't have a long aerobic session, that's totally okay in a, in a long period of time, but as long as you tap it. And what I mean by tap it is, we always run into the situation where we have our 10 through 15 players that never play in a second. And so they are losing fitness as the season goes. And so for them, once again, you don't have to run them at the end of you know the practice the day after. You don't have to punish them for not being good at basketball. <laughs> but what you need to do is you need to find a way just to tap that aerobic system every once in a while. And you can do that via bike. You can do that via med ball circuits. You can do that in, in uh, via pool session. You don't have to make it punishment. What you can do is you can make it very specific and, and you just tap into it. And they're going to be able to maintain those qualities. But it goes back to what we were looking for is from the aerobic system standpoint with your starters, like they are playing a very specific game, right? Their metabolic demands are very specific and you do need to tap that every once in a while. You need to tap into that aerobic. And that's where you need to use that, the aerobic training, use that as a buffering system, use that as a recovery day. And you don't do that by running them. You do that by taking the loads off the joints. And that's where, once again, those bike sessions, those med ball circuits, and my favorite pool sessions will allow the system to recover faster by doing an aerobic session. But you only need to tap into that once every two weeks at best. And that's where I think, especially for your high minute players, you got to be really smart about it. So let's go to a high school coach, youth coach, you know, even a player development coach that's working with those age level players. Like really at the end of the day, practice should be focused on skill. And when I say skill, I mean, skill decisions combined, like that's skill to me, decisions are skills. So working on those things over this obsession with conditioning, this obsession with toughness through physical conditioning. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think this, if you only have a certain amount of time with those athletes, you want to spend it moving the biggest rocks possible. And the biggest rocks possible is the technical and tactical aspects of sport. It is not conditioning. Any jerk can take your kid outside and condition them. You don't have to be that good or smart of a person to get someone in shape. You just got to expose them to stress over a certain duration of time. Honestly, guy, like if I was a sport coach, I would pick up, you know, a few books that are just basic physiology, basic conditioning, and they will be the best strength coach on the planet. The reason for that is because they have the entire spectrum in their hands. They understand, they can understand the simple concepts of human physiology, stress response adaptation, what is conditioning, if you will, and how do I make it specific for the demands of the sport of basketball? They become the best strength coach. The reason for that is because they already have the technical and tactical aspect down. And now they can train them through the entire spectrum. I'm telling you, strength coaches, like I love them to death. I mean, it's obviously what I am, and that's where I got into this field. But we're going to be a dying breed once this is figured out because we're not that necessary 
if we're used the right way, we are very necessary. But in certain aspects, we're not that necessary because if all you have to do is generally prepare these athletes to handle sport, heck, you should get it through basketball, technical and tactical. If you are working on finishes at the rim and you're truly doing it at a work to rest ratio that allow them to express force in the grandest way, which is plyometrics, well, then I know if I'm going for max effort jumps, I need to give them full rest and full recovery so they can repeat those jumps. And if I'm seeing those jumps go down throughout the session, I know the quality of jumps are going down, so I need to cut that session. It's that simple. Just because we step outside the weight room does not mean that those aren't plyometrics. It's basketball. Basketball is still plyometrics. And landing of those forces is strength work. It's just very specific strength work. And that's where as strength coaches, our whole job is to create such a robust athlete that they can handle whatever's thrown at them, not how can we trim the fat and how can we make them the best they could possibly be by being very specific with their work. And that's the difference. So explain to coaches then what you mean by recovery. So we build up and then we go through an active recovery, a passive recovery, more as the off-season. So I'm assuming we're talking more active. But this unloading process that allows us to build back up again. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, you can look at it really simple as far as just quantifying your reps. I mean, just the same as a strength coach would count sets and reps in a weight room. I would count sets and reps very similar to, uh, to the skill work that I'm doing on the court. For example... I don't care what cone drill you do. You're dribbling in between your legs, crossover, okay, Euro step into the lane and to a finish at the rim. The way I look at it, if you remove a basketball from it, is you just did, you did acceleration, you did deceleration, you did change of direction, and then you went into vertical displacement, aka a jump off of one leg. So like, once again, it's breaking down what is actually happening in real time, just taking the context of basketball away. So I know if I'm truly trying to develop like strength or I'm trying to develop power and I'm trying to develop a better athlete so that when they get to that scenario in the game, they'll be able to finish over hands. Well, then I need to put them in a position to actually do that. And so what that means is if I'm doing my most quote unquote explosive work, I hate that word, but explosive or power work, then I need to make sure that when they leave that session, they should not be tired because that's the reality of the situation. The reality is if I'm trying to develop power and I'm tired at the end of the session, I didn't develop power. I developed a mediocre jump and I'm able to do it over a longer period of time. That's what I just developed. So once again, like you will get more highly effective and highly transferable skill work that will transition into specific power work if all I did was make my work to rest ratios proper, which is... Once again, if I'm doing very explosive work, very you know fast, powerful, trying to finish above the rim, then I need to have them rest a lot longer than they're actually doing the drill. So one to five, one to six work to rest ratio will probably be very sufficient. Then once you feel they've established that skill, and now we're trying to prepare them for the competition sport, which is basketball, like playing five on five in competition. So in other words, preseason, then you challenge that skill by now reducing the work to rest ratio. So we were just talking about a one to six. Now we're cutting it down to a one to four, a one to three, a one to two. And so once again, keeping quality high 
That's the number one thing I can say, keeping quality high. And then especially when you're doing your more finely tuned work or you're more, you're overreaching from a skill perspective, you're trying to introduce a new skill, you need, need even more rest. But then if you're trying to program this over time, the skill work that they're already good at, the, the things that they're, that's when you can challenge the robustness of their system by training them at smaller work to rest ratios, because that's what's challenging them from a cardiovascular, from a fitness standpoint. But when you're trying to do, I see this all the time quote unquote power drills and learning new skill, but you're doing it at work to rest ratios that just make them tired. You didn't develop any new skill. The new skill that you did develop is via compensatory patterns in faulty states, which is now creating what? Like not, not a good quality movement pattern. It's creating them like basically stilts on a house. And so I'm trying to solidify their foundation with the new skill. And then I build up the robustness of their system, their tissues, their cardiovascular system by taking already existing skill and shortening the work to rest ratio. Yeah, I love this stuff. And it's, again, so practical, so applicable in that way. So you've covered that. Talk to us about tapering, because, again, I think there's misconceptions based on what you're saying there that you know, as we reduce the volume, we also reduce the intensity, but the research says exactly opposite, right? I mean, that's what I mean by your quality control manager. Like these are things that we've known ever since we first stepped into a classroom in human physiology, right? It's, it's really simple. If I decrease the volume of sessions, the only thing that could actually go up to keep work the same is intensity. So if all of a sudden I go from, and, and you see a lot of good coaches do this, they're in their preseason, you know, volume's very high. Then once they get in the non-con, they cut the volume down. And then once they're in conference play, the volume is like, I mean, a quarter of what it used to be. Because yeah, what's the point? Like at that point of the year, you're, you know what you're working with and you know what you got. Doing more work is not sustainable, and it's actually going to make them a lot worse because now they're in a fatigue state because you can't maintain those levels that long. And so you just see a reduction of volume. You should see a and and if you have a reduction in volume, you should see increased intensities because now they're in a more rested state to be able to express those forces. I mean, once again, going back to a car analogy, there's a reason why you don't see Indy car or there's Indy 500 cars on a road. You know, they, they can't, they can't go long distance. There's a reason why, like they're not doing road trips because they have to constantly be fine tuned so that they can race on race day. You know, that's why we got to stop training these guys like they're Honda Civics. If I can give it as simple as that, I mean, that's where I use car analogies all the time because everyone knows what a car is. Like that's the best way to analogize what, what we're talking about here. Yeah. I love that. Love that analogy. And it paints a picture. And the other thing that, I really, really want you to highlight is this, the value of stimulating the central nervous system, which is often, again, misunderstood that that's one of the primary aspects of warm-up, pre-game warm-up, wherever it is. And can you talk about the value of that and then also some ways that we can do that, incorporate that into our warm-ups? Yeah, as far as the CNS is concerned, that's going to be your number one determinant of readiness. And so when you see CNS go down, you're going to see skill go down. You're going to see decision-making go down. You're going to see everything go down. And there are so many cool ways of quantifying where an individual is from a CNS standpoint. One of my favorites is a, a grip 
gripometer or grip dynamometer. It's basically those grip joints where you squeeze as hard as you can and it tells you how hard to squeeze it. The reason why I love it is because it's very non-specific, right? It's not jumping. Jumping is a skill. So that's very specific um, and it doesn't beat up the body. But so when you squeeze this thing, it's going to give you a number. Grip strength is a great determinant of CNS, of the central nervous system, because it determines how much force you can create through your hand. And what's really cool about that is I can knock that test out in five seconds. So when it comes to the CNS, that's an easy one to go, well, once I start seeing, for instance, I have 13 athletes on the court and all of a sudden their grip tests go down, that's how I know they are all fatigued or they're all not in a readied state to perform optimally. Now, not saying that you can't perform well in a substandard state, but the accumulation of that in a short period of time is going to manifest in some form or fashion, whether through injury or through really, really, really poor performance. And so as far as the CNS is concerned and preparatory, it's my favorite day to excite the nervous system is game day. And so in, in the college setting, we would lift on game day. We would do very, very fast work in the weight room on game day because that is stimulating that central nervous system to be fast. And that's what's really, really cool in the college setting is you, you can do that in a team and it's, it gets a lot of camaraderie and you can get like that kind of hoorah type culture and environment. And you throw some Tendo units, AKA it's a, uh, it's a way of quantifying bar speed. And now the guys are all excited. So there's ways that you can, there's so many different ways of stimulating the central nervous system, but my most favorite is to do it on game days in a very specific way. That's going to prepare them for the sport. Because when I move my body fast, my brain has to be fast too. And it's safe to say that these, the d- dynamic warmups that have become so popular and obviously layup lines, that these things don't stimulate the CNS. So should we still be doing them? Okay. I think yes and no, because it's all dependent. It's all dependent on the individual. And that's what's difference between the pros and college, right? What I enjoy is watching the best athletes do what that best athletes do. When I see the best athletes, I'm not talking about the best basketball players. I'm just talking about the best athletes, the ones that can jump the highest. What I see them do is they're dancing. Generally, they're trying new dunks. They're sitting on the sideline. They're doing all the things that promote a good central nervous system. They're doing very low-level plyometrics via dancing that's rhythmic and coordinated, stimulating the brain with the body. I love that stuff. And then all of a sudden, you just see them attempting new dunks, right? They are stimulating themselves because just putting the ball over the rim isn't good enough for them. So now they're overreaching. So they're they're creating new outputs so that they're stimulating themselves and getting themselves hyped up for the game. And then you see them fully rest and recover. Like that's the one thing that you see. But most of the time – when you see in warm-up lines, like guys that just don't care or they're just going through it and they're like smacking glass or playing below the rim, well, those are your guys that are probably not that good at basketball anyway. <laughs> like, or they're not that good athlete, I should say. They're not really like expressive in their force. So once again, it's too hard to just go, well, that athlete should do this or, or all athletes should do a central nervous system stimulating thing to get them ready for the game. I think it's very interdependent between the athletes. If you have a guy who's just a straight up shooter and plays below the rim, who cares about central nervous system? Like he can do things that are very like he can do juggling because that is very high stimulating neural from uh, a neck up standpoint and challenging from a hand eye motor coordination standpoint, but very low from a body standpoint. And then the exact opposite, you know, you got guys that are slashers and high flyers, but you know, that's basically all they do. Let them be them. 
Like they're like cheetahs. They're going to go and take off and then they're going to rest. You know, so I think you can't really blanket it with everybody should do the same thing or layup lines for trash or, you know, maybe everybody should do layup lines. Hey, put them in an environment for them to be themselves. And if you see it, and once again, like this comes down to coaching all the other things that we can dive into. It's like, look, if you see someone being, you know, lazy or whatever, that, okay, we, that's a different conversation. But if we're talking about preparedness for sport, those guys know it better than we ever will because we don't know what's going on inside their head before a game. Well, I'm glad you said that because individual has always been this team cohesion. We've all got to do the same thing type of thing, but really the best warm up is very individual and specific. Absolutely. I mean, especially the higher levels you go, the more you, the more individual it has to become because the, there's a separation of oil and water with these athletes at that point. And that's where it's like, look, if you put people in a box, they are only going to operate within that box and they will never surprise you with results. But if you let people operate in their own space, but you create an environment that fosters that, fosters that type of growth, fosters that type of creativity, man, let them surprise you with their results. So back to this concept of warm up, one thing that I started to go to, and I've seen this in other situations, but we've gone to three on three slow learning reps instead of doing dynamic or stuff like that. We're doing, I don't know, let's say 60% VO2 max. So jogging and talking ability, right? So mm-hmm. say we're doing up screen, down screen, and we're getting offense versus defense reps, slow learning. So we're still getting perceptual reps because it's offense versus defense, but we're more focused on the mind than we are anything else. Is that something that you would consider a positive in terms of getting my players ready to practice? See, I think that's what uh, soccer and rugby has done so well so much better than basketball has done is the short-sighted games. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they constrain the courts and they constrain the players that are playing within it to have a specific outcome. Right. And that's what I I think is beautiful. For instance, if I cut the court, if we're at half court, just like we are in in warmups before a game and I cut the court in half. So now I'm only operating on the right side and I have three on three going on. Well, what happened? Reality is that's a small amount of space and that's a lot of people in that space. So now tactically, I have to do things. I have to use my brain to get the job done. And if we're going, like you said, low level and you're just making sure you're executing good screens, you're able to slip, like it should be effortless, right? And for you, someone to get a good output or a good shot out of the situation. That's operating at a high intellectual level. That is operating with your brain. As soon as we now spread out the court and we're playing three on three full court, for example, well, no, athleticism can win. At that point, you don't have to be that intelligent to win because you have so much space. If I'm just a better athlete than you, I'm just going to go around you. And so that's a great way of progressing and regressing drills. And you can do that with anything. It doesn't have to be warmups. It can be that. If you, if coaches just operated within that sport coaches with just that template alone, Man, you just increased volume and intensity, just the same as I put weights on a bar and take weights off a bar. Because the environment that you put them in can only elicit a specific response. And once again, three on three in a quarter court is very low level output, but very high level basketball IQ. As soon as I open up the space and uh, the amount of forces that can be created, now I am looking for physical outputs to get the job done. And that's the difference between, 
you know, like you got your San Antonio Spurs back in the day, right? Very high intelligent veteran guys that could just pick you apart with execution, you know, and then your running gun type, you know, offenses that are trying to beat you with athleticism. And that's, that's where if you're a coach and you identify, okay, my team is this, but I need them to get to this. That is a simple progression and regression that you can do to elicit a very specific response that you're looking for. Bring this back a little bit. What we're both saying is basketball is the most specific type of training, whether we're talking about physical or skill development or perceptual. And then we're also saying basketball is a warm up for basketball, right? Like if exactly. I if I do that three on three, constrained on a side, up screen, down screen, like it could be a pattern, whatever it could be. But my my players are moving dynamically while they do that, right? They're backpedaling, yes. they're sidestepping, they're sprinting, they're jumping, different things like that. So that is a warm up, and we don't need anything exactly. beyond that, do we? I don't think we need anything beyond that, but there is a certain aspect of underpreparedness that these athletes are because of who they are. Once again, mm-hmm. these are very – the best way I put, I've heard it put was they're giraffes with, with clown shoes, right? They're very, very long human beings with big feet and big hands, right? And they have underprepared their body for general health and well-being because of who they are and how early they, uh, they uh, play basketball or they um, specialize in a sport. So I would say yes and no. If I was in college still and I was working with freshmen and sophomores, I would prefer them to do some more generalized warm-up that gets them stronger through full ranges of motion because I'm preparing them from a health standpoint. Now, when you have your more veteran athletes – they don't need much other than their outside work that they're going to do in the SNC. But once again, like it, it's a teeter totter of who you're working with at what time you're working with them. And so as much, I, I know I'm mudding the water with that response and I apologize for that, but in, in, in a ideal state, no matter who you're working with, you're going to have a general physical preparation. Then you're going to have a very specific preparation and then you're going to have sports. Now, depending on your status and who you are as a player and how many years you have played it will determine how much time you spend in general preparation, how much time you spend in specific preparation and how much time you will spend in actual basketball. So hopefully that gives the audience a better idea is whoever your athlete is and what level you're at will be the sliding scale of how much time you are spending in those three domains. Hey coach, brief interruption of the podcast. I'd like to take a second to talk about Armchair and the basketball podcast title sponsor, BetOnline.ag. With NASCAR, UFC, and golf back, BetOnline has hundreds of games and events to bet on. Make sure to sign up before the NBA and MLB come back later this summer. They have live and simulated sports as well as a $10,000 Madden Bracket Challenge you can enter for free. Visit BetOnline.ag on your computer or mobile device to check out the action. BetOnline is your online wagering solution. Oh, I love that. By the way, that's great. It really brings it home for me too. Coming back to this whole bigger picture that you started with, one of the biggest problems with bringing any sports science into, say, a basketball team setting is this lack of integration, right? The best way to bring you into this situation is essentially you're involved in all aspects, right? Like strength and conditioning isn't this separate entity that they go to. It's a part of everything. 
Can you talk about the importance of integration? So integration is everything, right? If we operate in silos, then there's a lack of communication. There's a lack of understanding. And then there's ultimately a lack of execution. So everyone loses. And so what I mean by that is if your team sport or your sport coaches have an idea, okay, we're going to be running gun. And then your strength coach is a big football jock. And he's like, we're going to get really strong and we're just going to lift very, very heavy weights. Right. And then your sports medicine is over there. Like, Oh, we just do ice and STEM. And so good luck with your recovery. Then you have three different areas that are operating within their own world. And now you have just not a good product. Like you built a bunch of linemen, if you will, to go play running gun basketball. And then you don't have the, uh, the recovery to be able to come back and do it all over again. So like, that's where I'm trying to get at is, yeah, we have to be integrated. If I understand what my head coach wants out of my big, okay, my big, he's not a big, he just protects the rim because he's athletic and long and he's going to pick and roll to the rim every time he's not popping for anything. He's just a slasher. Okay. I need to make him very dynamic. I need to make him move just like a guard. But if I'm, you know, like your old school, like we're going to pound it in the paint, then I need to make some big, strong dudes that can be able to hand a lot of isometric loads. So they need to be able to push people out of the way, just like a lineman would. And that's the integration aspect. And once again, you can now inject applied sports science. I mean, this is a whole another can of worms of the analytics and what it takes to actually understand the data that is being extrapolated, depending on what systems you're using. But the best is, if you are using applied sports science or you're using data to drive results, well, everybody that is incorporated in that has to understand what all that information even means. I mean, if we take Connexon data and look at XL3, and that's the, you know, the NBA load, and we're trying to get, you know, the strength coach to understand it, but he's a big strong guy and he doesn't care about that stuff. And we're trying to get my head sport coach to understand it, but he's sitting there like, uh, I just know technical and tactical aspects of sport. Well, th- then nothing matters, but you know what does, uh, looking at grip strength. If I just take grip strength alone and just said, Hey, here's that grip dynamometer that we talked about earlier. Hey coach, you know, seven of the dudes grip strength is down today. Ooh, that means half the team is tired or underperforming, huh? Yeah, that's what that means. Yeah, today might be a light day. Like maybe today is more of a slow day. We're just going to do some, you know, neck up stuff. We're just going to do some films, something like that. Once again, that it doesn't take expensive equipment to be applied sports science. Like it doesn't take, you know, a great strength coach to make guys bigger, faster, stronger. What it, what to truly get a good product is for all parties to be integrated, one, but two, the information that's being disseminated is highly understood, like very palatable information that all parties, including the athletes themselves, truly understand. Perfect. Let's go. Let's get this done. So the other part of this is, for me, I look, and you can add to this list, and maybe I'm wrong on the first one, and you can tell me that too. But if I'm truly integrating a strength and conditioning coach, there are certain decisions that I make as a basketball coach where really it should be deferred to the strength and conditioning coach. I'll give you an example. Who should be teaching our players how to run and stomp? That's you, right? Strength coach. Easy. Okay. Then how come coaches dictate the closeout to players? To me, you're the guy that's teaching a closeout, right? Because what is a closeout? It's running and stopping as, as controlled as possible. 
What I add as a coach is the technical details of where we're forcing it, scheme-wise, where I want stick hand, et cetera, et cetera. But that would be an example of where I should defer the strength coach in that way. Are there some other examples? Oh, there's tons, right? Like that. one of my favorites is the closeout, right? We have these debates all the time. Like what's the right way to close out? Is it sprinting straight out and squaring them up? Is it forcing them the one direction with left foot over or the right foot over? Is it one hand or two hand? There's so many different factors that go into it. If you want the short answer, the short answer is what does your best athletes do? Because they've already figured it out. I don't care what we're coaching. Your best athletes self-organize and displace forces way better than you can teach it. So the funny thing is, like we had this debate at a low major I was at. We had an athlete standing in the middle of the court, and they wanted to teach a closeout from a skip pass. And what you, the first thing you saw was the athlete take a step backwards and then go forward. And they're like, no, 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 that's wrong. And I'm sitting here like, whoa, 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 no, he's right. That's called a false step. A false step allows the body to self-organize so that it could produce more force to get from point A to point B a lot faster. So what they tried to teach the team in a whole setting was a sweep through step, which is way slower. And so, but what would end up happening is you watch it in the game and you're like, yeah, the kid did a false step anyways. So that's when it comes to learning, when an athlete can discover it itself, that is true learning. You put them in an environment to figure it out. Once you find success, you applaud the success and find the reasons why they're successful, not pick apart why they're not successful. Because once again, if your goal is to get from point A to point B and to stop something as fast as possible, well, get your best athlete doing it. And whatever they do is probably right. Like, let's not all try to kid ourselves and act like we are like this um, this plethora of knowledge of each individual athlete and their backgrounds and how their physiology is of 18 to 20 years that we haven't even effing seen. Like that's the part that makes me so mad is that we think we have the answers. No, the athletes have the answers because it's intrinsically in their own self. What we do is we foster an environment to let them discover better answers. And based off of our, off our experience and knowledge will allow us to help them get to those answers faster. But if we're sitting here with our arrogant selves thinking, I'm going to get this kid to do this drill better by telling him that how to execute footwork A, B, and C, you're dead, dead wrong. Because once you roll the ball out there, once the popcorn's popping and they're playing, that shit ain't happening anyways. And that's where I'm sorry. I, I know I just want to. No, listen. No, that's perfect because I'll tell you a story. Like, I've been to so many practices where coaches obsess over the closeout in drills. And then when they actually play and practice, there's no stopping it for them doing it wrong. Right? right. Like, it's like, because as right. you said, it's the athlete knows how to do it. And if not, then we have an athlete that should be modeled on how they're doing it, is what you're saying, right? For sure. Find, find the one that does it the best, right? And then have them visually watch them. And that's a simple, like they're more than likely your basketball players are very visual learners. Most of the time they're very visual learners, have them watch it and then, or film them and watch themselves and be like, Hey, that doesn't make much sense. Does it? And here's another part. And that's where the strength coach comes in is there are physical limitations that will not allow athletes to do certain quote unquote footwork 
or strategies to get them from point A to point B the fastest. The reason why is they have a hip limitation, an ankle limitation. They have certain things that are going on in their own self that there's as many drills as you do, they will never get better at it. But what you need to do is from a technical and tactic or from a tactical perspective, save their ass. You got to put them in a position to go, well, I can't let him be in that position because if so, X is going to fail. So if he's going to be that important on my squad, I got to find a tactical way to hide his weaknesses. And that's the, that's where coaching comes in. And that's where like the strength coach step or the strength coach steps away. Sport coach is taking over, but the strength coach provides that kind of information. A strength coach can give sport coaches so much information on the limitations of their athletes that might, might come down to, you know what? We just got a zone because we can't guard man to man. Like that's how important information that is understood by the individual who understands the human body the most can be disseminated, can be used. It could come down to that. It, 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 it honestly could. And that's where, well, you know, if you have a good strength coach, like use him for that sets and reps, bench press and squat, get the fuck out, get out of here. Like that, any, any jerk can do that. Like anybody can do that, but that is the gold in your strength coach. So integration is what, what we're saying. And what that actually means is like, you should be involved in practice planning. You should be involved in preseason planning, what drills we're going to choose in practice. And then, as you said, like so much of it is just, you're monitoring the data. You're giving me information that this player needs more, this player needs less or whatever it may be in that sense too. Can you give us, say well, give us some other ideas? Yeah, I'll say this. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, the head coach is always right. Period. Mm-hmm. The my only job is to make him more right. That is my only job. My job is to find a way to make whatever he thinks is right because it is right. His experience and what he recruited, he, he did it for a reason. I got to make that right. Because he has a vision. And, and if we're all in the same boat, I'm on head coach's vision. Hey, coach, that's your vision. You know, we have we have these cheetahs and you want to run and gun. You dag on right. I'm going to make it right. How, here's how I'm going to make it right, coach. You want to run and gun? Well, here's the work-rest ratio so that we can be fast all the time. Here's the days off that we need. Here's the, you know, volumes and intensities that we need to preserve our ability to be cheetahs. You know, that's what your strength coach should be. Your strength coach, whatever your vision is, he helps make that better. That's like the analogy I used earlier. All I'm doing is setting the table. You already have the dinner plans. You already know what you're making for dinner. But my goal is to set the table for you so that it is it is impeccable. Like It is exactly what you thought that experience was going to be. And that's where a value of a strength coach can be to a sport coach. So we talked about the closeout. I'll give you another one which is maybe it's still taught. I'm not sure, but this concept of the upright defensive stance where your head's within your center of gravity. I learned really early from players when I started coaching going, I was like obsessed with controlling the got to be in this perfect defensive stance. And then I watched my best player play defense and their head was so far in front of their center of gravity. And then as you start to research it, you go, it makes sense because they can accelerate from this position of instability much faster just like a sprinter mm. coming out of the blocks. So that's another example of, I should defer to you somewhat with defensive stance, right? The movement specific to an individual. 
I love can talk this. About, yes. Can you talk about that? And then again, maybe put a few other examples in. No, nah, my, my favorite is, hey, you got to be lower. They got to play oh, lower. Yeah. You know, that's my favorite example. <laughs> and as a strength coach, there's many ways that we go, okay, coach, I got you. We're going to squat. We're going to this. We're going to that. Okay. If you are dealing with post players that are trying to wedge people out and, you know, old school back to the basket, put you in the rim scenario. Okay. I got you. But my goal for any athlete is I want them to have the variability to do both. So yes, there's a time and a place and a position to be in, but there's a reason why these athletes play tall. There's a reason why these, because rather you blame it on, you know, because they're the tallest player playing AAU at the time or whatever, and physically having the ball taller than everybody else was advantageous. Agreed? Agreed. But when you're in the same level and you're now playing with a bunch of other seven footers, well, that that doesn't change. Like at that point, it's like, oh, shoot, I do have to put myself in a biomechanical advantageous state to be able to create force so that I can jump up and over these other seven footers or keep the ball away from them in X, Y, and Z patterns. Right. But that's one that's like, look, there's something very specific and there's a, uh, there's a very specific reason why each one of these athletes do what they do. From my perspective, when athletes play tall, it's because that's the position they can create the most force in. That's the position they can create. I'm sorry. They can quickly create the most force in. So if I teach my athlete to be really, really low, they're going to be like in sand. They're going to be really, really slow. So if I need to, once again, there's a very specific reason why you need to be low. If you're looking at, and I get this one all the time, well, you know, the best players play low. No, the best players have the ability to play low. Like they have unbelievable uh, ankle inversion, knee version, and tibial rotation and IR and ER at the hip that will allow their shin angles to almost be basically slapping the ground as they do that crossover dribble. So when you see that, that's when you go, oh, I'm going to take him in the first round because that's a freak. Like his body will allow him to do that. See, that's the difference, right? It's like, I can't train that. I can help them get more comfortable being lower, but I can't train human physiology. I can't train his hips. Like I can train them to a certain degree. I can get you, you know, a degree or two or a standard deviation, maybe to a different range, but I'm not creating, you know, here would be a good example. Um, you know, and a Steve Nash to have a Kimball Walker, you know what I mean? Like I, I won't be able to do that. There's two totally different players that play two totally different ways based off their body types. And so you got to be very, very specific and understand a, the athlete you're actually working with is an individual and his individual needs are going to be very different than what you think his individual needs have to be. Now, what I would say is you challenge it over time. You, okay. Hey, we're going to play low and just see what happens. If he's not playing above the rim by playing lower, you know, his body is not prepared to do that. So there's a reason why he's playing in that position or he's under a lot of fatigue and he can't get into that position. So there's a lot of, once again, if it was just, if it was as easy as saying play lower, Jesus, man, like, you know, like everybody would be yogis and we, you know, we like, there'd be no need for me, you know, but there's, you got, there's so many things you have to extrapolate from each individual with each individual task you're trying to give them. And then you come to a common theme to go, oh, that makes sense. 
are all, that's why he does that. And it's, do you mess with that or do you not mess with it? And then that's where your risk reward analysis comes in. So the lack of mostly formal education in terms of sports sciences, is that a, is that a huge detriment do you think right now in, in kind of transferring this information from strength and conditioning coach to coach to player? Yeah. I mean, one thing that I've been exposed to uh, being in the league now is, you know, a bunch of different sport coaches that come from overseas. And a lot of these coaches go to what they call basketball school. And when they, it's the same as going to college here in the States and in basketball school, they learn about the human body. They learn about physical education. They learn about motor learning. They learn about how to actually do these things. And when I, and I have the greatest conversations with them because we're talking about the same things we're talking about right now and they have a better understanding and you can have a great conversation, but in the States, it's not the same, you know, in the States, you don't have to have a formal education in the human body to understand why people do what they do. And so then there's that, just play lower. And then there's that you gotta be tougher. And then there's that. And that's why those questions are still being asked and still, and, and that's, that's why you still have that. And so, yeah, formal education, absolutely. Um, one thing that I thought was brilliant about the overseas coaches was that they had to have that background to be to even be able to, to coach. And I thought that was a very strong suit. And I think that's why you're seeing really good, fundamental, you know, skillful athletes come from overseas because they've been brought up in a system or schooling where you have coaches that, I mean, they're basically PE coaches who learn about sports skill. That's great. That's great. Uh, you have a reputation uh, for your creativity and what you do with athletes. Like I've heard you'll have them train in the dark, learn how to fall, crawl on mats. Can you talk about some of these things and, and why they're important? Yeah, I, I do have a reputation for that. I hope it's a good reputation. Um, it was. But, it was a very good reputation. But everything that I do with that is because I have a problem. So everything I'm doing is I'm trying to be a solution specialist. Like I'm trying to find a solution to a problem that I'm seeing. And for example, you know, the, the wrestling mats and learning how to tumble and, you know, learning low level gymnastics. Well, I was working with 18 to 21 year olds who only played basketball their life because they, they grew up taller than everybody else, you know? So they didn't really have an understanding of other sports or even their own body and what its capabilities were. So there was one practice early in my career where, you know, the famous drill, you roll the ball and they go and die for it. Right. And like probably 13 out of the 15 players looked like they fell down a flight of stairs. And I'm like, Oh my God, like these guys don't even know how to interact with the ground, but they don't even know how to dive. The only ones that knew how to dive were the guys that were my height, which is five ten, five eleven. And I was like, yeah, because they're closer to the ground. They've interacted with the ground more than likely they played other sports. You know, but I'm looking at these six foot six and above guys and it's like, oh, dear God, like you're going to get hurt. And so to me, I'm like, I need to add that tool to their physical toolbox that gives them the ability to operate. And so I try to create basically, you know, ninja warrior training, if you will, for 18 to 19 year olds coming in as freshmen because they have no idea how to even operate within their body. It's just like you're watching, you know, I just got two new puppies. So I'm watching these puppies walk around and I'm like, Oh my God, like they grow. And then they have no idea what to do with their limbs. They're just flopping around everywhere. And I'm like, look, that's basically what I had in college basketball. Like that makes a lot of sense. 
they have, they don't have an awareness. And so all I did was create an environment, AKA the wrestling room, where it's soft pads and all that to make them more comfortable and give them an environment to interact with the ground with and be a lot more comfortable and confident in. And then I just introduced them to skills and movement strategies that allowed them to get from point A to point B, AKA standing, talling, falling into a stand. So now to me, that's not only injury mitigation, but that's all that's performance. Because you see it all the time, right? You got you got your guard that gets into the lane, throws some some crap up, and has to fall down because he can't accept the forces that he displaced on the ground. So now there's a turnover. He's going to the other end, and he's got to get back up on his feet as fast as he can to for transition. Well, I just gave them a strategy how to do that and faster. So now I got them back on D faster. Oh my gosh, man! I'm a sport coach now. You know what I'm saying? Like that's where the the blending of it happens is because I had a problem. I had a guy that would stay on the ground. I had guys that couldn't even do a ball drill where they're like a loose ball drill. And that's what was, that was my creative outlet. And, you know, turning the lights off. I mean, I heard, I don't know if it was Larry Bird or Magic Johnson, I forgot who would shoot outside late at night uh, with no lights on and it made their, or in the gym and it made their shooting better the next day because of, you know, the acuity aspect, the eye aspect. I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense actually. You know, so the, all they did was change the environment. And that's what I try to develop within whatever facility, whatever organization I'm in. I try to have a facility or gym that I have multiple options to have multiple strategies to work with athletes to expose them to things that they may not have been exposed to due to the sport of basketball, but also at the same time, hyper specialize in what they do best. And it's overreaching in their already existing ability to being a great basketball player. Very cool. Uh, and I love that like solution-based approach. Really, that's, that totally makes sense. And uh, talk to me too about microdosing. What's it mean? Why does it work? How does it fit into basketball? Yeah, for me, I mean, microdosing fits in life. You know, um, it was mm-hmm. something that me and a head coach sat down with because we were both frustrated with warmups. Like, that's honestly what it came down to. Like I asked him over lunch one day, I'm like, what's one thing you just hate that I do? And he's like, warmups. I, I, I hate watching you do warmups. He's like, the guys hate it. I know you hate it. Like warmups suck. I'm like, yeah, man, it's 10 minutes every single day. If we multiply that, however many practices there are in a season, that is so much time wasted. And so, you know, I was in a certain environmental constraint where I was at a very high academic institution, which took a lot of stress out of the kids as is. And in coordination with their class schedule, I had to bring them in twice a day just to get their lift and practice in. So now I got them coming to the facility twice when in reality, I'm like, you know what? I got to de-stress their day. Like their holistic stress is so grandiose as it is. The last thing I need to do is ask them to come in two times a day. And if I had to bring them in two times a day, sometimes there's a 630 in the morning. And the last thing those kids need to do is not sleep. So I thought of an idea is, okay, well, if we have, you know, three workouts in a week, let's just say we're doing three lifts in a weekend season. Well, what if I cut that volume in half and spread it out over six days, which is every day you're playing or practicing. And so I'm like, well, that would only take what, 15, 20 minutes to knock those sessions out. And so that's what we did. We got rid of warmups. We got rid of warmups. And now we added more time to the weight room per day. Now I gave them more exposure, more training frequency. So if you imagine this, if you're a student athlete in college and in a freshman year, you lifted every single day, not long, you know, just 20 minutes, 20, 30 minutes tops, but you trained 30, 20, 30 minutes, six times a day. 
for a whole year uh, or a whole competition season, man, you've already been exposed to the weight room via frequency than a senior in four years. So how much motor learning was taking place there? I got them fresh every day, every day. And I had a thumb because, and this is the beauty of it. My weight room is a controlled space. The basketball court is a chaotic, dynamic environment. So if I have 13 athletes in a controlled space and they look like crap that day, what do you think they're going to look like when you put them in a dynamic environment? So now I had that communication with my coach saying, man, hey, um, you know, today ain't looking too hot, man. I got six, seven dudes not looking too good, man. They can make they can make changes on the fly or they can change the start of practice to make it more interactive, more engaging so they can get something good out of practice. Right. Because now my can. So in a study or in a research scenario, the weight room is the control because the bar weighs 45 pounds every single day, no matter what. So every time I pick up that bar, it's going to weigh 45 pounds. And if you lift weights, you know, pretty often, if you pick up that 45 pound bar and it feels like it's 85 pounds, well, it's probably not going to be a good day, AKA central nervous systems down, just like we were talking about earlier. And that's in a controlled setting. You add a dynamic setting where there was basketball and there's decision-making, there's all these other things. Yeah. It's probably not going to be that good day. So now you've got to strategize and you got to think, okay, how can I win today? How can I do the things that I need to do to get accomplished in practice so that we can have the best production of what they can give me today. And that was what was really cool about microdosing. I was able to spread their stress out for, um, on a larger path so that I could actually train them heavier, faster, more often, and they can recover from it. Because if I asked you, like, I don't know if you have a weightlifting background or not, but if I asked you to do one exercise in a weight room and do it for 20 minutes, you'd go ham on it. It's like taking a prisoner to the prison yard and saying, hey, man, like, you got 30 minutes of rec today. They would go out to the bench press and they'd bench press so their face fell off, right? Mm -hmm. But they're not going to be that sore from it. They're going to be able to come back and do the same thing the next day because, once again, the environment set itself up to where only certain things can happen because of time, just the availability. And so that was the beauty of microdosing was that I was able to control practice or the the quality control of what could happen in practice and i got a pulse on these guys every single day and now from a motor learning perspective i have 18 to 19 20 year olds who've never been exposed to the weight room at all in their lives to now having them learn how to train and man were they doing some cool things because guess what happened once we got into conference season so you got preseason non-conference and then we're in conference play practice volumes cut basically in half if not more but we have this huge reservoir of stress that we could buffer because we built this stress or, or this um, resiliency or abundant or uh, buffer to be able to handle stress. So guess what? January, February, March, we were setting PRs. I was getting highest jumps, not only of the season, but some guys in, of their life in March. And that's the time we're supposed to be peaking, right? Quote unquote peaking. That's the time we're supposed to be you know, playing our best basketball. It's also the time our body should be feeling the best. And we set up that environment. Luckily, I had a head coach that was absolutely amazing and let me do this. But we were able to have the freshest bodies and the and the most strong and explosive bodies at the end of the season. That's the goal. And the goal. Uh, yeah. So as you're saying this, like this is akin to block practice versus random practice to a certain extent, right? Absolutely. Because like, it's again, just like, what. 
Yeah, it just struck me. I mean, like, I now use this example because people seem to understand, like you, as you said, with the bench press, if you just go do bench press all the time, like you're going to gain, but you're going to get to a point of plateau and not gain anymore. Because again, it's just not causing that adaptation and all that training effect. It's the same that we do with these block drills in practice. They become mindless and they don't lead to improvement. So in the same, as same as in strength, like block serves one or two purposes. If you're doing block periodization in it, and as far as a strength aspect, you are doing it because you are so underdeveloped that you only need one stress to be able to develop other variables, or you are being unbelievably specific and because you're at the highest level of what you're doing and you only have one target. And I got that from my friend, Buddy Morris, who's with the Arizona Cardinals. That means you only have one thing to do, AKA sprint fast or AKA jump high, but we play basketball, which there's multiple targets, right? And so the only reason why block works, um, it's in the infancy stages in team sports. It only works in the very beginning. After that, mixed and the research shows mixed is a way better approach. And the idea of, you know, like the variables within a drill could be so like you, that's where the creativity aspect for sport coaches can be just like the same I use in the weight room. For instance, you have a guy, you're doing spot shots, right? And you're doing the same 10 shots here, 10 shots here, 10 shots here around the horn. Right. And it's like, Oh, okay. Like they're the best three point shooters in the world you know, like what I see, but like, do they really need to keep doing that over and over again? You know, like, or in college, like, do, or do we need to add a stressor to challenge their already known skill set? Block is good if you're learning a new skill, but after that, and after there's a certain level of mastery, you got to mix, you got to mix and then you got to add stressors or add additional stimuli to push the motor learning to push the variability. One of the coolest things I've seen, and a lot of people made fun of them for this, but it was Kevin Durant and Steph Curry when they had that one shooting coach. I don't know his name, but he does like the, he jumps in the air 360 behind the back into a three-point shot. Those guys are so daggone good at shooting threes. It does, like, how else do you make them better? Well, you make it more challenging. And yes, that's obviously not the confines of the sport, but you now have made their variability so great that when they go back to the normal skill that they've known over time, over time, they're able to hit it just like a golfer, right? Like, that's what I love about golf. I, I hate playing it, but I love the aspect of golf. Like the guys that are like striking it off the tee, well, they also can strike it just perfect with one foot in the sand and one foot out of the sand and still get it on the green. It, it's not, it's the variability within the skill that allows their skill to be good. It's not just because they mastered the skill and they repeated that mastery of the exact same skill under the exact same constraints in the environment over and over and over again. So a, a coach that's listened to this podcast, let's, let's yeah. help them. What are some of the questions they should now ask their strength coach based on listening to this. What are some questions they should ask? Ooh, okay. That's, that's a really, a really, really good question. Um, so I would say this, if you are comfortable and confident with your strength coach, ask them honestly what they think. Like, it's not, what can you give me? It goes, okay, you're here to audit my program. 
from a physical stress standpoint, what are some things that we do that could, that could be more efficient? And what the goal for that is, obviously, it's practice. Because practice is the largest stressor that these kids go through because it's what they do the most, right? They, play, they practice a lot more than they play in college, right, in high school. So if practice, if there's room for efficiency in practice, then you've already won light years ahead of where you were going to be by doing the same thing over and over again. So if I'm a head coach and I'm ignorant about the human body, which is totally fine because your goal is to be the best technical and tactical practitioner on the planet and use your resources around you to be able to make you better. And the first question I would ask is, okay, look, this is my idea of practice in preseason. What do you think? What do, how can I make this practice better? Well, the goals are to be this. Okay, well, coach, your work to rest ratios probably need to look like this because that's what's been taught to me via in a controlled environment, lifting weights or strength, power, and development. And so that's a question that, like, that's honestly, if you just ask that question, you're going to solve a lot of your problems. It's just right there. How can I do practice better? How can I, what drills can I take out? What drills could I make better? How can I challenge my best player and how can I get them to their next level based off of external stimuli? Like these are things that, you know, once again, it takes a lot of critical thinking skills to be able to do this or else you're just kind of like nonchalantly adding new stuff and hoping for a good outcome. Like that's the one aspect you don't want to get to and you got to understand who you're talking to. But you know, that's where it's a big power for me because I actually played college basketball. You, you will not believe this, but most college and most college strength coaches never play basketball. Like they're all like, most of them are football guys. Like, like 90% of them are football guys. You will never, you won't believe it. And so even just having an awareness of like, you can learn about technical and tactical things, but there's a feel that you'll never learn there's a feel and there's an understanding and there's the culture and there's all these other things that are so hard. But if I was a head coach talking to my strength coach, no matter what his limitations are, the things that you have to understand is, look, how can I create volume and intensity and practice? How can I quantify it? And how can I program this out and then be able to make changes on the fly? I hope that answers your question. I'm sorry. I digressed for a second. No, it's, it's tremendous. I mean, I, Look, I'm I'm all in. This is this is great. Uh, we're gonna wrap it up. The coaches have enough to think about already, but uh, I can't thank you enough, Corey, for just stimulating our thinking and giving us so many practical things to be able to think about. And I, I believe this is the best place because that's where I followed you for a while is on Instagram. And coaches will post it in the show notes and everything like that. But Corey shares some really cool stuff on there too. And uh, you know, you're doing it for all the right reasons. You're trying to help people as well as uh, obviously do your job. So we appreciate that. Thanks for spending time. Hey, no worries. And I appreciate y'all's patience. And once again, I take a lot of different roads and hopefully one day they'll, someone, one of those will lead to Rome. Uh, no doubt. No doubt. All right. Thanks, Corey. Take care. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the basketball podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter. Mm-hmm.